Well, hey, folks, welcome to The Jason Wright Show. I am so excited to have with me today uh, Dr. Stephen Hussey, the author of his new book, Understanding the Heart, which is a magnificent read for especially somebody like me, the layperson who likes to figure out what's going on with my health and my body. And uh, and I'm so excited to have Dr. Hussey here today. Dr. Hussey, welcome back to The Jason Wright Show, man. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Well, you know, this was something that we just were able to kind of talk about, and I think I pre-ordered your book right before you and I first met on the show, and now I've had the opportunity to read it, and man, well done. This is such a great book for anyone that just wants to better understand how the heart functions, and again, or like kind of you and I talked about offline, not to, you know take the place of physicians and legacy medical practitioners, but to just get a better understanding so you can ask better questions. And so I just want to say congratulations. It's a great book right off the start, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to, it's great to hear. That. I'm glad people are enjoying it. Well, okay. So here's where I want to start with this. Let's just, uh, you know, for those who may not have heard our first episode or, or even if you heard it, just to reinforce, kind of talk about, your story and why you became so interested in the heart. How did, what happened to you? Yeah. Well, you know, as, as, as a child, I had a lot of um, ailments, I guess I had a lot of uh, inflammatory health issues, um, everything from uh, irritable bowel syndrome to allergies to, I used to break out in hives all over my body and we didn't know why. And um, you know, I had um, all kinds of inflammatory things, asthma, um, but eventually ended up with autoimmune type one diabetes where the inflammation got so bad that my body got confused and attacked part of my pancreas. And now I'm type one diabetic and my body doesn't make insulin anymore. And, um, and, you know, I'm happy to say that throughout my health journey, I've, I've cured most of those ailments that I had, um, except for the type one diabetes, which is kind of collateral damage that uh, resulted from that inflammation. And so being type one diabetic, it heavily predisposes me to heart disease and other diseases. Um, but especially heart disease. Um, and so, you know, throughout my, um, um, as I grew up and throughout my education, I was just always like interested in heart disease, how I can prevent this, um, because of this. And, you know, in high school, I didn't have the foresight that I, that I have today about trying to prevent things. So I didn't really take care of myself much in high school, but once I got to college, I started learning about health, um, and figured out that the way that I lived my life had a direct impact on how I could manage this condition. And it's ultimately when I got rid of all those other inflammatory conditions was when I started doing that. And so it's just been this, you know, this journey for me of gathering information, you know, changing my lifestyle, getting feedback from that and just trial and error type stuff. And, um, but yeah, I was especially interested in the heart, um, and how I could prevent heart disease. And so as I, you know, I just soak up everything, uh, you know, I have this, this good baseline medical education that everybody gets when they go to any sort of medical professional school. Um, so that helped me in, in, um, in, in learning about these other things, but I came across a lot of stuff that was very contrary to what I learned um, or what I've been told about the heart. And, you know, I started sharing that maybe, maybe three or four years ago now, and, and people seem to like it. Um, and, uh, and so I decided to put it all down in a book and, and that's where we have today. Do you think then, and you know, I, I don't know if you remember or not, but I told you last time, uh, my, my daughter, my youngest daughter 
she shares your, uh, uh, both of you guys have type one diabetes. And I can tell you that Abby, one of the, the, if there is a silver lining or, or benefit, it's kind of what you just touched on there as someone who has type one diabetes, you're, you're pretty much thrust into this world of having to understand your body in a way that most people don't. And so with that, what was it that when you started figuring out, because I, I learned something from your book that I should have known, but I did not with regard to glucose causing scarring of the heart and the problems that that can cause. So where was it that you started kind of just as a general interest, taking it to a different level? But, and, and then what actually, I know that there was a pivotal moment with your heart that happens that I think is going to dispel a lot of the understanding that people have that listen to this is that, you know, you did not fit other than type one diabetes. You really don't fit the profile of someone that's going to have heart disease. So kind of take us to where you went from just, uh, you're diagnosed with type one. So now you're looking at your blood. Obviously you're looking at your glucose levels in a way that most people don't do, but then you take it a step further and then kind of where, where does, what's the real uh, demarcation point of, okay, now it's not just kind of novelty. I want to dive into this at a much deeper level. Yeah. Well, like when I was diagnosed, I was nine years old and I had, I really didn't understand anything the doctor was saying to me. Um, I just knew my mom was like sitting next to me crying that I was been diagnosed with this, you know, and, so I was like, oh, it must be bad, I guess. But I think that, you know, even though like, because like when I was first diagnosed as a kid, I was pretty diligent about it. And the doctors were so surprised that as a type one, my A1C was like 6.2 or something like that, um, which is high for the average person, but, you know, really good for a type one. And, um, but then like in high school and I, I, you know, was became this defiant teenager and didn't take care of myself and stuff. But what it taught me though, like having to manage type one diabetes, just, it, it, it just taught me or just exposed me to this idea of, um, uh, of kind of almost like biohacking, you know, mm -hmm. um, because I'm, I'm tracking something and I was doing it because I was told to, I told I needed to, if I wanted to feel good and manage my blood sugars and people were telling me that long-term it could cause issues if I don't do it. So that's why I was doing it then. But then when I got into college, you know, and I, you know, I got interested, like, I had been inspired by my pediatric endocrinologist to become some sort of physician. And so I started taking these, um, these science classes that you need to get into some kind of medical professional school and chemistries and biologies and things like that. And I just, I didn't do well at first. I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't apply these things to anything. You know, I couldn't apply what I was learning to anything. And so I was just kind of like, kind of, you know, treading water. And then eventually maybe like in my sophomore year, I, I took like, you know, um, I started, I, I chose my major as health and wellness. And so I taking all these health and wellness classes. And then I started applying what I was learning in all those science classes to health. And I was like, Oh, like now it makes sense. And it was way easier to learn when I had something to apply those sciences to as I was learning. And I also started experimenting, like, you know, you know, if I do this health behavior, how does that affect my ability to, to my blood sugars or my ability to maintain blood sugars? And I'd already been exposed to that kind of biohacking feedback that you look mm -hmm. for. Um, and so it helped me, um, get, you know, do these little experiments and get direct feedback. And how does, how does exercising this way versus that way affect blood sugar? And, and so then you, you look at, you're like, well, blood sugar is not the only marker I could look at. And you start looking at all kinds of different things. Um, and so it was just kind of like this, you know, step-by-step -step process, process that kept building on it, on itself, you know? And so I tried different diets. I tried different, um, lots of different routines, you know, uh, as far as health goes and, 
And, um, you know, eventually it's, you know, people think that like lots of times I work with clients or, or patients or whatever, and, and, uh, I'll say, this is what, this is probably what you should do. I don't expect you to do it tomorrow though, because I didn't wake up one day and just start doing the things I do today. It was a very gradual process. I had to work up to it and learn a lot of things, but I'm here to tell you that this is what I think you should do, but I don't expect you to be perfect tomorrow. Let's work on, you know, let's do this one first and then add this and then add that, you know? And so it was just this very gradual process. Um, so yeah, and then, you know, despite everything I know, um, you know, and, and everything I do, um, I can't say that I was following my own advice to a T uh, at some points in my life. Um, but yeah, in, in January 2020, I had a heart attack um, and uh, it, it kind of blew me away. It, it scared the crap out of me. Um, sure. And, uh, and I have my uh, reasoning for why I think it happened. Um, and so I was sitting there in the hospital recovering from the heart attack and just being frustrated with all the advice I was getting from the physicians on how I should recover from this or, or why it happened in the first place. And just lots of shutdown of conversation, like nobody wanted to talk about. And I was just like, you know, these people are here doing their job and I'm sure that they care and they have their opinions. They have what they've been taught. Um, but no one's going to care more about my health than me. And that's, that's, that's what, uh, that's the way it's been for me since I became passionate about health. And so, you know, based on all the information I knew, um, about the heart and based on what they were telling me, um, I, I knew that there was no way I was going to follow their advice. Um, and yes, I, I understand that someone else in that situation wouldn't have the background knowledge that I have, um, and maybe wouldn't be able to make those same decisions, which is why, you know, the doubts I had in the hospital about releasing this book and about, you know, people thinking that I'm a hypocrite and things like that all went away when I experienced what I experienced in the hospital. Um, and I was like, everyone, like, even if people decide not to do what I did, um, or they think that my advice is wrong because I had a heart attack and how you can't even prevent your own heart attack. So it must be wrong. Like if you think that way, that's fine. But the information needs to be out there. Like if people are in my situation and they, they are trying to decide what to do going forward, um, or they're trying to prevent what happened to me or heart disease in general, like all the information has to be out there. And unfortunately the information that I present in my book is not out there enough. And so people don't have the whole story. So how can mm -hmm. you make the correct decision for you? if, if all the information is not out there. And so that's why I decided to release the book. And honestly, nothing I wrote in the book changed after I had a heart attack. I mean, I, I still believe, and I mean, the research that I quote in the book doesn't change because I had a heart attack, you know? Right. Um, so uh, it just, it, it, it means I need to work harder. Um, it means I need to do better. Um, and, uh, and hopefully, you know, um, yeah, that won't happen again, but, uh, but yeah, so like, that's, that's kind of, my whole process, you know, in, in a nutshell, like everything that's happened to me that's led me to where I am today. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think that uh, what I, I loved what you wrote when you wrote that, you know, I am not a cardiovascular surgeon or whatever, a cardiologist. I am a well-educated patient. I, I think that is, I think that is so key. And that's what I want the takeaway to be. And so just with that, I want to read literally from, from the book so that anyone listening to this, and, and I am encouraging everyone that has any concern for managing their heart health. And again, just understanding it. And, and you know, I'm kind of like you, Doc. I mean, I geek out on this stuff. I try to understand my body as best I can, but you taught me things because I, I'm just on my own. I don't go as deep into the weeds as you did. And then, you know, you, you write here, and I think this is so well said. Many of the ideas presented in this book are very different from what you will find within the medical practice of cardiology, a field of medicine that is providing unsuc has been proving unsuccessful at preventing 
heart disease and fostering good heart health. Instead, this book presents information about the heart, what it is, why it is there, the ways it can malfunction, and how we can keep it healthy. It is my hope that being under the care of the correct doctor and being armed with the information in this book will empower people to take back control of their health to prevent and even reverse heart disease. I love that because here's the thing. I always tell people, you got to have a why. You know, he who has a big enough why can overcome almost any how, as Nietzsche said, and then also Viktor Frankl said. And if we understand, and that's what I love about this, you you give an idea of, okay, I'm not going to try to tell you, I'm not going to try to replace your doctor. Let me show you how the heart works, and then you conclude for yourself. And that's the cool thing about it. Like I told you before we got on, as I was reading the book, much much better prepared than I was with our last conversation because, you know, the book hadn't come out yet. I was like, oh, I'm able to finish this. I get where this is going as far as just how the heart operates. And knowing that makes me better prepared to go, you know, again, I'm not saying I'm going to take the place of my physician with my knowledge by any means, but also the the legacy medical community, and I've said it a, a number of times on this show, they're kind of at a disadvantage and, you know, they they have to diagnose, prescribe, diagnose, prescribe. The opportunity costs that they face are so high with, they've got so many patients, so little time, and that's what they do. And there's no one to really walk alongside after that patient leaves to go, hey, you know, the, the, doc, the physician is just not in a position to walk along beside you day by day, week by week, planning your meals, planning your activities and your actions. And so I think that's what I like most about this is that it's just, it's the, the why that you really nail on this. So, uh, so well done on that. Okay. So now let's get, that's getting into some of the nitty gritty of it. As it relates to understanding the heart, one of the biggest takeaways that you bring forward is this idea that most of us, we think the heart is just this big pump that just puts blood through from our heads to our toes all through our body constantly. It's this big muscle. You know, you'll hear people say, well, the heart is a muscle and it's it's pumping blood through our bodies at all times. Okay. So correct that theory. Yeah. So there's actually a, quite a bit of evidence, um, you know, that uh, that the heart is not this, not the main mover of the blood in the body. Um, that it's actually impossible for it to be based on its size and its efficiency and the power that it create it can create, um, and so, so yeah, if the the heart is definitely contracting, and so that's what I say, it's not pumping. I mean, it's doing a little bit of pumping, but no more than enough pumping to just move the blood through the chambers of the heart. Um, that's that's all the real the force that it can create, and that's all it really needs to do, anyways. Um, but it is contracting. Uh, and it is contracting a lot. So it's a very metabolically demanding issue. But the reason it's contracting is different than than what we've been told. Um, and so, so like the blood, it, it moves throughout the body largely on its own um, because of this this idea that water can hold energy. And this is research out of the, from the lab of Gerald Pollack. Um, so water can hold energy. And when it holds energy, it actually um, can structure itself into a gel-like state. And so it's called the fourth phase of water. It's not solid, not liquid. Um, but it's more of a gel state. It can structure itself onto the lining of a, a hydrophilic surface and the arteries are hydrophilic surfaces, water loving surfaces. And so when it does that, it actually, the way that it does that, we don't have to get into the details, but the, the way that it structures itself actually creates an energy gradient um, that, that starts um, the flow of, of fluid of, of water or whatever, whatever's in that water. And this flow will, will, um, will go on indefinitely as long as sufficient energy is put into the system. Um, so that the water can absorb the energy and continue to maintain that, that structure water balance. Um, and so, so 
the water or the blood um, is moving largely on its own. Um, and there are things like, like I said, the heart does do a little bit of pumping, um, but it's more just contracting. And there's, you know, one way valves in the veins that prevent backflow and there's contraction of muscle that, that gets blood flowing a little bit too. But largely it's due to this, this um, energy gradient created in, in the, in the system that keeps blood moving. And so if we think about it in that sense, we have to, we have to think about what, what is something that we know of, like with an engineering or something that, um, that water is flowing into and then is moved through and then moved out another way. And, and that's called a hydraulic ram, mm -hmm. um, which, which I didn't know what that was when I first read it. So I, I don't worry people don't worry if you don't know what that is, but, um, there's lots of YouTube videos you can watch about what a hydraulic ram is, but there's no, like, um, it's, it's, it all operates based on pressure changes and, and flow flow that's already happening. And so if that's, what's happening in our arteries and veins, there's already flow happening. Um, the heart acts more like hydraulic ram, where really two hydraulic rams put together because there's um, a right and left atria and a right and left ventricle. Um, and so a hydraulic ram is something that, um, you know, it, it takes flowing water from somewhere and just kind of redirects it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But in the process, like usually up a hill, you know, like in, in like if we're moving water from somewhere and in, in the heart, it's, it's from, you know, the right side of the heart to the lungs and then back to the, the left side of the heart and then out into the, the arteries. Um, but um, so, so if we think about it like a hydraulic ram, um, then we have to say, well, well, why is the heart there? You know, if it's, if it's, um, if it's acting like this hydraulic ram and it's not pumping blood, um, the reason that it's there is that there are multiple ways that you can energize um, blood or energize water. Um, and, you know, the blood is about half water. Um, and, uh, and one of the ways is, infrared light or, you know, some sort of uh, radiant energy to the system. Um, another way is like electromagnetic fields, the correct electromagnetic fields, not the wrong ones like Wi-Fi and things like that, but the right ones like that come from the earth and other living beings and things like that. But also vortexing, which are spiraling or swishing around um, the fluid in the presence of oxygen. And there's always oxygen in the blood, even in the venous blood, there's still oxygen. It's less oxygen than the arterial blood, but there's still oxygen there. Um, and, uh, and so the heart is, is more like this vortexing organ. Um, as the blood flows through the heart, the contraction of different uh, muscles and different chambers of the heart and the flow through the valves creates this swishing, this vortexing, this spiraling, whatever you want to call it. And that energizes the water and the blood in the presence of oxygen, um, which then allows for um, or, or, or allows it. Um, the blood to, or the, the water in the blood to form the structured water and lying in the arteries when it gets out into the peripheral arteries. Um, so that's one reason that the heart is there. Um, the other reason is that it helps maintain pressure in the system. There's a reason it's placed right in the middle of the arteries and the veins. It's because that if we have um, a stress response or we have, we go, we exercise, like go for a run or something like that, that the tissues will demand blood. And that's what drives blood flow is the tissue demand. Um, and so, um, when that happens, all the blood will go to the arterial side or try to at least, um, to deliver more nutrients and oxygen and to the, the muscles and the tissues so that we can do that task or we can have that stress response or whatever. But if the heart wasn't there, all the blood would go over to the arterial side and the venous side would collapse and we, we die because then what, then blood couldn't flow through that anymore because it's collapsed. And, and so one reason that the heart is there, another reason the heart is there is because it maintains pressure between the systems. If you look at like endurance athletes that are doing long-term, um, pretty vigorous exercise, um, there's, there's plenty of evidence that shows that the heart is actually slowing the flow of blood when they're exercising. Um, and the reason that 
that hearts get bigger in, in endurance athletes like that, it's not because they're stronger at pumping blood. It's because they're stronger at stopping the flow of blood um, because it's so intensely coming in. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, it just really kind of throws things on the, on the head there. But that's those are the two reasons that the heart is there. It's, it's to energize the water and the blood and to maintain pressure in the system so that we don't, you know, in times of, of need, we don't uh, we don't get a collapse and, and death. Yeah. Okay, there's so many things in there that are, are probably going to be eye-opening to people because I know it is for me. Like, again, for example, and I, I want to get to, and please don't let me, if you, please don't let me forget to come back to the ultra-endurance athletes because that is something that I had to learn, I guess, earlier this year. I really backed off all the hardcore cardio I was doing. I was putting so much pressure on my body until I understood that you could actually cause scarring to the heart by overdoing it uh, with too much cardiovascular work and how that works, the stopping of the blood. And the, cause I was, I was that lay person that thought, well, Lance Armstrong probably has a, the, a heart the size of an elephant because it pumps so big. And that's just what he's conditioned it to do. Um, that's not the case. So I definitely want to talk about that a little bit just to give people an idea of how they need to balance their workouts. But also let's talk about, like you talked about infrared, you talked about, you didn't say it, but basically grounding, getting these, you know, this energy from the earth, these things that I guarantee you a lot of people that are listening to this podcast, they do just because they're told, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. Ben Greenfield and Dr. Stephen Hussey, they stand out and barefooted for 15 minutes every day because they say that it's good, it's good to be, to go do some grounding. So I'm going to do that, but they don't understand the why behind it. And again, it goes back to if you understand what you're doing and why you're doing doing things, you're much more likely, I believe, to continue on that path and forming the habit. So let's talk about some of those things that are happening. And then let's talk about, okay, because something that was new to me this year in my study was old blood versus young blood. When you hear that, you're like, blood, my, my blood is my blood. But based on what I'm hearing from you and what I've read in the book, it's very critical to understand what we put into our body and what we metabolize and what actually gets into our, to, to create the makeup of our blood. That's where I think a lot of people, they, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it was just me, but this is where I think a lot of people miss the point. They're so worried on just this, the heart as this muscular pump thing that as long as I pump it a lot, I'm okay. I can eat whatever the hell I want. I mean, as long as I just keep it exercised instead of worrying about no, it's the stuff that you're passing through the heart that's that's really the 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 crux of the matter. Am I getting that right? Yeah, definitely. And so, I mean, one thing that we um, want to think about here is like a, a hydraulic ram, you know, has to have enough fluid to yeah. work. Yeah. Has to have enough fluid passing through it to actually work to be functioning. Um, so, what if we're chronically dehydrated? You know, and there's not enough water in the blood. Um, or there's not enough water in our tissues um, that is stealing from the blood and going into the tissues, you know, um, then then that hydraulic ram system doesn't work as well, you know, because um, there's not enough pressure, you know, to maintain um, th that flow, you know, uh, that that sufficient flow to make sure that the hydraulic ram is working. Um, not only that, though, um, we need to make sure that so like lots of times people, you know, we talk about structured water. Lots of times there's mm -hmm. these devices now that people are like, oh, I want to structure the water that I drink. And yeah, you could do that. But, you know, you're not drinking structured water. If you're drinking structured water, you'd be drinking like water that was like a gel, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but um, so we're not really drinking structured water. You're, you're energizing water so that when you drink it and it gets into your body, it can um, uh, it can uh, it can form that the um, 
the structured water in the in the lining of the artery. Um, but in reality, like you don't really need to do that. I mean, there's all all this water in your body. Why not work on exposing your body to the things that structure it? So energizing, so putting that into your blood, like that energy into your blood. That's really really important because um, we worry about all these like the biochemistry of the blood and we take blood work and, you know, the cholesterols and all the different metabolites that we can, we can find in the blood. And that's fine. That's all useful stuff. Um, but I'm more worried about like, is there enough water? Is that water energized um, enough so that it can actually do what it's supposed to do uh, in the body and, and help the heart function like it's supposed to function. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's kind of like just keeping an engine clean, right? I mean, if we, we think about that for our cars, it's like, if you go get, my dad would never let me go to the chief, off-brand gas stations that were loaded up with a bunch of crap. He said there's too much alcohol or whatever, and it's going to dirty up your engine. We, we want cleaner fuels for our engine to keep it running, clearly. It's kind of the same concept, right? We've got to keep good, clean fuel going through that heart. Now, talk to me a little bit about like what your current protocol is to on, a, on the daily, making sure that you are structuring or hopefully you know structuring internally your blood to the, the, the energy that goes through you, what are the, some things that every day you're going to do to make sure that you, you maintain that practice? Um, well, one thing dietarily is that I eat the freshest food possible. Okay. Um, because you know, there's structured water in us or there's, or there's energized water in us mm -hmm. and, um, you know, in plants and animals, it's, it's energized as well. So the fresher, the food, the better. So you can imagine, you know, when we ship food from all over the world, by the time it gets to us, it's just not that fresh. So I eat as local as possible um, and uh, and as fresh as possible um, so that I get that. But that's not the main way that we would get, you know, the blood energized. But um, I use a sauna. I, I try four or five times a week. I use infrared sauna. Mm -hmm. um, now that it's getting warmer, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get out into the sun. That's the original source of infrared. Uh, and your body can absorb all kinds of um, wavelengths of, of radiant energy. But infrared is just the most it's the most highly absorbed by water so infrared is really important and you know 40 percent of the sun's rays are infrared um and also this this time of year I'm, I'm trying to get out and be barefoot on the earth as as often as i can um because that's really really important for not only um detoxing yourself from like bad electromagnetic fields um but also energizing you know getting electrons into the system so that it energizes the water and the blood um, lots and almost, and also calming your stress response. Um, so lots of different things there. Um, so that's, those are my, uh, two main things that I do. Um, but I'm also, you know, I'm a chiropractor. Um, my practice is very neuromusculoskeletal. So I'm, I have my hands on people, adjusting people all the time. And the electromagnetic field that we get from other people is also, you know, um, uh, something that helps energize water and energize the body. Um, so, so. I, I have that advantage um, there, but um, you're yeah, lucky. Well, thing... I, that's the toughest part for me because I try to stay away from people as much as I possibly can. Doctor, yeah. I'll just be honest with you. But yeah. So. yeah, yeah, that's sometimes, that's going to be the hardest part of the protocol strategy. for me. <laughs> sometimes that's a good strategy, you know, depending on the situation. <laughs> right. um, yeah, I mean, the other thing is is we don't want to we don't want to expose our body to things that's going to that's going to break down right. the structured water. Okay, so that could be. Um, I mean, really that's just oxidative stress and inflammation. Yeah. Uh, those types of things they can like this, the, the way the structure water forms is a very electronegative space. Okay. So it has a lot of electrons to donate and these free radicals or things that can act like free radicals like to steal electrons. Mm -hmm. So that's a perfect place for them to steal it and break down the integrity of the structured water. Um, and so, um, you know, everything from different 
toxin exposures, everything from plastic to phthalates to heavy metals to artificial fragrances, all these different things that we're exposed to every day. We want to reduce our exposure to those. Um, chronic stress can lead to high levels of, of oxidative stress, um, burning the wrong fuel source, um, you know, being too reliant on glucose um, for a fuel source. I mean, it's okay to burn some glucose in, in certain times and really the body's burning it all the time. Um, but being too reliant on glucose can become problematic and create more oxidative stress than we want to. Um, so, so yeah, those types of things are important too. All right. And jumping around a little bit, cause I know I marked it in your books. I thought you did a great job of essentially what you're talking about, some research. Let me see if I can't find it. I know I can at least get to it. Um, there was a, a certain form of research that you did not really like to go by. And basically, let me just kind of simplify it. it it's mm. because the, uh, it essentially cherry picks data. It excludes a lot of things. It looks, it finds these correlations like, okay, if you eat a lot of cholesterol and or a lot of people that have heart attacks or heart disease, they, you can look at, they also eat a lot of cholesterol. So just that one correlation kind of becomes the founding basis for the whole hypothesis that, ah, cholesterol bad causes heart disease without looking at all the other parameters and other inputs that are going on around that. So since we're talking about things we put in our body, let's talk about this thing that, as you say in your book, you can't talk about heart disease and the heart and heart health without mentioning cholesterol. And there's so much, in my opinion, maybe not just misinformation, but just confusing information about cholesterol. Is it good? Is it bad? What's good? What's bad? So kind of get this audience up to speed on just how they should view cholesterol and its function in the heart. Yeah. So like you were kind of mentioning there, like the, this idea that cholesterol and saturated fat are the drivers of heart disease was born in the fifties and sixties, uh, based on some, um, some bad and very low tier research, right? You know, so we're talking about epidemiology and these, these are studies that basically, um, can only show correlation, um, but not show causation. It can only show an association between two things. So the, the example that I give is like, if you're standing on the side of the road and you see a traffic jam in front of you and it's also cloudy, um, those things are happening at the same time. They're associated with each other in that way, but you cannot say that the clouds cause the traffic jam or the traffic jam caused the clouds. There's just no way you can prove causation. And that's how these studies are. That's like, they're, they're designed to show these associations so that you can say, okay, well, this is associated with each other. Now let's test it clinically, or let's test it with a randomized control trial and see if one is actually causing the other. However, those RCTs, those randomized clinical trials are, are hard to do, especially in nutrition. They're very expensive to do. So lots of times they're not done. Most of the time they're not done. Um, and so we go based off these associational studies that cannot prove anything. And so um, there's lots of associational studies that show that red meat is more associated with, with um, heart disease or with cancer or whatever. Um, but there's also associational studies that show the opposite because you can't rely on these studies, right? There's, there's lots of studies that um, um, that say, um, that show that there's that higher cholesterol is associated with better outcomes of health, but there's some that say that it's associated with poorer outcomes with health. Um, and so it's like, which ones do we trust? And, and the point is we can't trust them. Um, and so, uh, but unfortunately most of the nutritional recommendations that we get from academic institutions or government agencies are based almost entirely on these studies. And the idea that cholesterol and saturated fat is bad for us was based on these studies to begin with. Um, and by the time they tested them out with clinical trials, which they did early on in like the sixties, um, by the time they tested them out and showed that they were wrong, 
the theory had already taken off. Yep. And so, and so, um, everybody kind of stuck to it for whatever reason. And you know, we're, we're kind of stuck with these rising rates of, of disease in general, but especially heart disease. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of different issues with these studies. Um, one of them is, is that you're relying on people to like, basically you're just asking people what they ate. You're doing right. surveys. Right. right. So like lots of people aren't going to remember what they ate or they're not even going to know like, Oh, how much was that saturated fat? I don't even know if that's saturated versus unsaturated, you know? So it's, we're relying on those food surveys, which is really, um, not a good way to do research, but then also there's this thing called healthy user bias. Like if someone's trying to be healthy and they're listening to these recommendations we're getting from these institutions and things, and they're, and the institution's saying, don't eat red meat. Um, then the person's going to say, okay, I'm not going to eat red meat. Um, but that person who's trying to be healthy is probably also likely to be managing the stress and not drinking, not smoking, eating a whole food diet, um, that kind of stuff. They're, they're more likely to be doing healthy behaviors. So not only are they eating less meat, they're doing other healthy behaviors. So was it the eating less meat or was it the other healthy behaviors that, that created health and better outcomes in these people? Uh, and we can't, like these types of studies cannot account for that. They can't show that kind of thing. And then vice versa, you know, if, if, if it shows that people who ate more red meat um, um, had uh, poorer health outcomes, it can't account for the fact that this person who's eating more red meat may not care as much about their health because they're not listening to those recommendations to eat less red meat. And so they're also eating red meat and that is, you know, comes with fast food or they're not, or they're, they're smoking and drinking and they're not managing the stress. They're not exercising because they're not into your health. You know, they're not listening to this. They don't care. Right. And so like, you can't flush that out. You can't, you can't um, um, figure out if it was actually the red meat that they're eating or was it the other unhealthy behaviors they were doing that caused poor health in these people. And so this is the, some of the major shortcomings of these types of studies, and they were never intended to be to base our recommendations off of. Um, and like I said, unfortunately, that's what that's what not just dietary advice is based on, but a lot of different health advice is based on. You know, I think most all federal guidelines, this is the type of research that they do because it's usually, and I hate to, I hate to be that cynical, but you look at so much of the studies that we, they get highlighted, that we listen to, that literally become gospel to here, you know, here in the States, it usually is some crappy research. It was not a controlled study. There's all sorts of parameters and inputs that were not accounted for. It's just these, they, they take one correlation that essentially supports a hypothesis that, you know, some politicians can go up, oh, here you go, boss, take it and run with it. We've done a study and there you go. And, you know, one of my, uh, my friends, Dr. Michael Leeds, you know, he talks about how this happened with all the, the um, industrial seed oils that we now see in all our food. Cause that's, that's kind of where the rise of that came, right? It's like, well, all of a sudden the federal government started saying all these whole fats, these animal fats are bad and vegetable oils are good. And it turns, and if you look, I mean, you look at the obesity rates and just the, the heart disease from the time the federal government started hammering into our heads that fat is bad, that meat is bad, but these veg, this vegetable oil garbage, which is poison, is good. I mean, there's a correlation for you, but, you know, we're, we're that, 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 that's so far down the road that like when someone like you or I, for that matter, come along and say, Hey, you need some animal protein. Go ahead. You need that, that good grass fed butter, you know, stay away from the margarine for God's sake. They go, mm -hmm. it, it takes them a while to adjust because that's just been preached to us for so long. Right? Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's kind of like the, like that, that's what everybody hears everywhere, you know, and it's all, unfortunately all sponsored, um, heavily by, mm -hmm 
by food industry. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's, and it's just, you know, it's the state of a capitalist society. People want to protect their bottom line. They want to protect their product. And so there's a lot of marketing and a lot of influence pumped into a lot of money pumped into the idea that saturated fat and meat is bad because it makes a lot of money for the companies that make these processed grains and sugars and vegetable oils, you know, and so they, they keep that money flowing through there. And it's the same with, unfortunately, medical research these days. Um, there's a lot of money going into these studies that are trying to promote or, or um, give a favorable, you know, conclusion or result um, in these studies to promote so that the pharmaceutical companies can promote their product. Um, and so there's, if you look at um, a lot of the studies where it says that cholesterol and saturated fat are causing disease, they're, they're funded by companies that, you know, make statin drugs and want to sell a lot of statin drugs because the more the idea is out there that cholesterol and the more doctors um, um, are, are preached to that cholesterol is a cause of heart disease, the more statin drugs can be prescribed, which is the more money the pharmaceutical companies will make. And, you know, people may see that as negative thinking, but like, that's the reality. That's, that's how it works. There's plenty of evidence and documentation that this is what actually happens. Um, and I cite a lot of it in my book. Um, and so we have to be wary of that and we have to, um, we have to know our sources and, and kind of learn how to, what to trust and what not to trust, um, because that is going on within the industry. So that's a perfect segue. And by the way, so I just had on my show, uh, Dr. Gus Vickery. I don't know if you've ever heard of Dr. Gus mm -hmm. or know him or not, but he's actually in Asheville. And so I was like, oh, and you, cause you went to North Carolina state. And I was like, ah, I didn't know there was a correlation there. And he made a quote on, uh, during our interview that has and will forever stick with me. And he, he said that if something has been designed you know, basically to operate a certain way, you must honor that design. Uh, you just, that's, that's the way it is. And it's kind of like our ancestral bodies, which is something that I have become much more keen to understanding why our neurochemicals, why they release at the times they do, what our hormones function is and relating it back to the, to our ancestral body. And one of the things that I tell anyone that'll listen, I'm like, you got to understand something. Your brain does not understand it's 2022 and not 2022 BC. It has no clue. It was designed to survive and all of these things function for a reason. And if you can better understand why, then at a minimum, you know, and this, again, you lay it out very well in your book that you're not trying to come up with some conspiratorial theory about, oh, why you should never take medicine and big pharma's against us and they're all about the greed. No, you, you don't do that at all. But what you do is you lay out the case, in particular with statins, as to what are they blocking? I mean, there's a there's a natural function there that's supposed to happen, and they're causing a a yield to what our ancestral body was designed. You know, so it's not honoring that design by stopping something. So, talk to the the listeners a little bit about what these statin drugs do, so that at a minimum they they hear it and they go, "Huh, well, I've had high blood pressure. I just saw my physician, and I'm not on it yet." But I'm thinking about getting on statins. That's what my physician said might be an option. Give that listener at least an understanding of, hey, and you're not, again, no diagnosis is happening on this podcast. That's not what Dr. Hussey's doing. We're not making any medical recommendations. We're just saying, here's an understanding for you to just think a little bit more about what is what you're doing from the way your body was designed, what it naturally does. And here's what you're about to do. Can you kind of describe that? And I hope I set that up the right way. I mean, I yeah, just, yeah. okay. Well, you know, I'll start with saying that, you know, we're obsessed with these, 
biomarkers and these ranges of these biomarkers. Mm -hmm. When in reality, we're, we're taking, you know, th these, the normal ranges um, have been established based on a population that is not living in a way <laughs> that it did for millions and millions of years, you know, before modern society came about, you know, so because we've only been taking these blood markers since like maybe the 60s, yeah. maybe the 50s, something like that. Um, and so our normal ranges are not based on what a normal lifestyle would look like for humans. We have to take that into context first. Excellent. Point. Um, and so then, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at these, these biomarkers like cholesterol, um, and we see that it's not in the normal range, whatever that is actually. Um, and then we aggressively try and change that, you know, instead of, instead of looking at, uh, the person as a whole and, and thinking maybe the body's doing this for a reason. Um, maybe this is exactly what it's supposed to do. Maybe, maybe the definition of health is, is the ability of the body to adapt to certain situations. And maybe it's trying to adapt to a situation right now. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe it needs this cholesterol or maybe, um, there's something else going wrong that's causing this high cholesterol. Like, instead of thinking that we just, we say, okay, how can we forcefully change the biochemistry to lower that cholesterol? Um, because that's what we've been told is best for us. That's what, you know, it's being the research is that's being funded to tell us that so that we'll, we'll do that. Um, but if you look at, so when we talk about biochemistry and like, especially the biochemistry of cholesterol, like there's like this 20 to 30 step process of, of what your body used to take a fatty acid and make cholesterol from it. Uh, and this happens in the liver and, um, and in the second step of that, um, a statin comes in and it blocks that second step so that cholesterol is never made. Okay. Um, and that lowers cholesterol in the blood because it's never made and put into the blood. Um, however, um, the big issue with that is a, we don't get cholesterol at the end of that, which cholesterol is essential for, for life. Uh, and there's plenty of evidence that statins and people with lower cholesterol, like, you know, um, like 80 or lower LDL cholesterol, um, have all kinds of issues, cognitive issues, they're more prone to diabetes, um, they have sexual dysfunction, they have muscle pain, all kinds of stuff, um, because cholesterol is an essential molecule for, for these things. Um, and so the thing is, is that in that 20 step process, there's lots of different metabolites that are made in that process of making cholesterol. And so those lots of those different metabolites are used for different things. They're not just these steps that happen, like the body takes some of those things and uses them for different stuff. Um, one of those things is to make antioxidants like selenoproteins that are eventually made into antioxidants. And that's really, really important um, for uh, maintaining low oxidative stress and inflammation and things like that. Another one is, is a molecule called um, dolichol that is, is made from one of these metabolites that is incredibly important for um, uh, their insulin receptors. So maintaining insulin sensitivity. And that's really, really important for warding off heart disease because insulin resistance is, is one of the underlying causes of pretty much all disease, but mm -hmm. especially heart disease. And so all these metabolites, like when you block the second step, none of those things are made. Not only do you not get cholesterol at the end of that, but none of those things are made. So the body doesn't have those things as well, which explains why we get all these side effects from, from statin drugs. And the most frustrating part is, is that, um, you know, there's really no sound evidence and people may argue with me about this, but there's really no sound evidence that cholesterol is the driving force in heart disease. You know, there's a lot of associational evidence that maybe, uh, smaller dense LDL particles or LP little a or APOB particles are things are more associated with higher rates of heart disease, but those things are not driving heart disease. The things that create those things are what's driving heart disease, which is damage to those molecules. Those are things that those molecules become higher when we get damage to 
um, tissues in the body, damage to cholesterol. So it's not just the cholesterol that's getting damaged, there's other things too. And so, um, so yeah, like it, not only are we causing more issues with, with, you know, statins are one of the, it's like pain medications and statins are always like one and two, as far as the most prescribed drugs, um, out there. There's even talk of like people wanting to put statins in the drinking water. And it's just insane to me because the whole idea that high cholesterol is driving heart disease is, is not well-founded. And then the approach is just, um, is based on that, that false idea. And it's creating a lot of issues. So not only not fixing the problem, not helping people not have heart disease, um, but we're also creating a lot of other issues for these people. And, you know, I don't think we really need any more evidence besides the fact that statin drugs are some of the most prescribed drugs in the world, but especially in the United States and heart disease is continuing to rise. So if they were working, if they were helpful, you'd think that we'd see some kind of dip in the numbers at least, you know, but yep. we don't. Um, so we need a different approach. We need a new way of thinking. Uh, we need to reassess. I, I agree wholeheartedly with all that. And I think one of the things that is, I've said it on this podcast so many times now, since I've kind of got my brain around it, that we, our habitat, so I, I like to use this analogy, the way we were designed we used to have to go out and the big concern was we were hunting for food, right? And the big concern was the saber toothed tiger behind the bush attacking us. Now it's, it's flipped. There are no saber toothed tigers and there is so much food and so little effort put forth to go get it. And then there's so much bad food. Um, and there's all of this stuff that has the high fructose corn syrup and has all these this, the, all these things that will just shoot your glucose through the roof. Now, talk a little bit about because we I don't hear enough, and I would I would imagine again I don't think I'm that unique. I bet there's a lot of people listening to this that probably do not associate um, sugar and high fructose or uh, or glucose with heart disease yet. There's, there is a, a, a strong case to be made, especially now if you do combine the bad crappy fats and then you put the sugar in it, that's where the heart can, can really have a problem. Talk a little bit about the, the way uh, glucose can scar the heart because that was a complete eye-opener for me whenever I was reading the book. Yeah, so it, the heart has it seems like it has this unique metabolism where it prefers fatty acids and ketones for fuel, even in the presence of glucose, which... And lots of other tissues in the body, that's not the case. Like if glucose is present, it'll burn, burn that first. Mm -hmm. um, like there's this oxidative priority, like what it burns. And, um, but it doesn't seem to be the case with the heart. Like it'll, it'll choose fatty acids and ketones. And, and I, I think in my opinion is that the reason is, is that when it's, when the heart is burns more glucose than it wants to, um, it leads to issues. So just like, just like if you, um, you go for a run and you start to feel that muscle burn in your leg, that's because your body is is burning a lot of the glycogen stored in the muscle. It's burning a lot of glucose um, when you do that because it needs to. It needs fast energy. It has to go through it. But that that creates a buildup of, of lactic acid and hydrogen ions um, that creates this muscle burn, right? Um, and so the heart doesn't want that to happen um, at all. And it's a muscle too. And so that's why it's it prefers to burn these fatty acids and ketones so it can maintain that, that steady contraction um, constantly and not get this buildup of lactic acid and hydrogen ions. Um, however, there are situations that I describe in the book where, um, the heart can be forced to burn more glucose than it wants to. And it's always burning some glucose, like all tissues in the body are always burning all three fuel sources. Um, but some, some more than others, depending on the tissue. 
And, um, and so when the heart's burns, forced to burn more glucose than it wants to, it can create this lactic acid buildup in hydrogen ions. And so sometimes, you know, what we call angina or chest pain, um, can be caused by, you know, lack of blood flow to an area. But I also describe in the book that that's, I think that's kind of a rare thing too, um, based on how, how blood flow gets around the heart, even in the presence of a narrowing of an artery. And I think it's more to, it's more related to metabolic shifts or the heart getting signals to burn more glucose than it needs to. And it has to do with oxidative stress has to do with being metabolically inflexible and it has to do with an imbalance in our stress response. And when those three things happen, um, the heart can get signals to burn more glucose than it wants to. And that to me is the cause of this chest pain, this angina. Um, you know, especially when we exert ourselves and the heart, um, has to contract a little faster to keep up with the demand of blood flow to the tissues, um, then more glucose is burned. And that's why people with chest pain or angina are just intolerant to exercise. They just can't make it to the mailbox or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. um, because it hurts. Um, and so to me, it, it's more of a, a metabolic shift due to, due to this unique metabolism of the heart. And, and so there are times when. Um, if we're, if we're getting that signal, if we're giving the heart that signal to burn more glucose than it wants to, and it, and that lactic acid builds up, it can actually damage the, 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 um, heart tissue, the muscle, you know, it can actually lead to scarring of the heart, which is, which is what I think, you know, happens when we, like, I talk about studies in my book where we have these in, people who have been endurance athletes their whole life. Um, and they're giving that the body, that stress signal, and it starts burning the, the, the heart starts burning more glucose than it wants to. I mean, you, there's some studies that show that people who um, have spent their life doing endurance athletes have actually have more intense scarring of the heart tissue, mm -hmm. um, which can predispose us to things like heart failure and things because um, the heart's just not functioning like it's supposed to, um, even though we've misunderstood what how the heart's supposed to function in the first place. But um, but yeah, it, has, it all has to come down to this metabolism, this unique metabolism of the heart. Um, and uh, it's just it's just fascinating uh, when I when I dove into all this, like to figure out that there are these things and it's just, why is it not talked about, you know, in, in medical circles, or maybe it is, um, but it wasn't told to me and it wasn't, it's definitely not told to, um, patients and things like that. So, um, so yeah, it's interesting stuff. Yeah. I mean, I would think that, and that's one of the things that's really eye opening to me was this whole idea. And I'm, and I'm glad you brought that back up because I want to make sure that the listener understands this is that, you know, you don't hear of a lot of, and this was, I never, I don't know. I never pay attention to it until either Peter Atia or, or Ben Greenfield It's one of those, those guys made the point that you don't hear of a lot of ultra endurance marathoners or even marathon runners living to be, to, uh, to be centenarians. You just don't really hear that much. You're like, well, if anyone should be in a category where that's the case, it should be those folks. And it's just not the case. And so then when you start to realize the 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 that that emergency burn almost and that's kind of what it is like i mean there you will actually start a fire to control a fire right when it's out in the out in the, the redwood forest of california yeah that's kind of what our body's trying to do it's trying to fight fire with fire but it was not meant to do it chronically and, and, and on an ongoing basis eventually it's going to get bewildered and that was so eye-opening to me and not that like i did a zone two training this morning you know which is you know just kind of I think for me is somewhere around a 263, 263 watt output for, you know, an hour. And that's, whereas I used to always hit it hard, you know, 45 minutes to an hour every day of cardio, even on days that I was doing resistance training and my body fat percentage was higher. My cardio was, I guess, good, but I looked weathered and old. My body was just telling me I wouldn't listen and that, you know, Hey, this is not good. And then I finally started listening to some of this advice and under, better understanding how the heart works and realizing, 
you know, there is such thing as too much cardio. Uh, and and it, it was a game changer for me. Now, one of the things I want to ask you about, uh, I just scheduled an appointment to have my blood panels done. And I, as much as you can tell the listener, I actually took uh, Mike Mutzel's uh, class where he talks about uh, high intensity health, highly recommend it. Anyone follow Mike. He's a, he's a great guy. And he, uh, he talks about there's things that are going to be just kind of standard boilerplate on every single blood panel. But there's also some things that may not be that you just want to make sure to say, hey, doc, I want to see these. Can you give the listeners what they should be looking for? And as well as, you know, we get, again, you mentioned it earlier, we get so obsessed with these biomarkers and these ranges that have kind of been set, again, for a population that's in a habitat it was really not designed for. Whenever someone goes to get their, first of all, how important is it to get your blood work done? And then two, how do we get the most benefit from that information? Yeah. I mean, I can make an argument that blood work is is not as important as we think it is. It's just because it's the thing, the one thing that we can easily most commonly test doesn't mean that it's the best one. Yep. Um, and, and, And we have to take it into context. Like, you know, blood work is looking at one tissue in the body, which is the blood. Mm-hmm. um at one snapshot in time yep. you know how how do we really know how much information that really gives us kind of like you I tried said, to figure out your glucose levels in real time you know it's like yeah well oh, that's, yeah. What, I mean, that's what it was I mean, a while but yeah oh yeah i mean you think about that like the cgms have totally transformed my ability to um to regulate diabetes because yep. i'm looking at things in real time i'm seeing exactly what it was all the time got it right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. And whereas before i'm having to take a snapshot on time i take my blood sugar and it's like that's what it is right now I don't know where it's, I don't know if it's going up or down. I don't, I don't know anything like that. Yep. Um, so, so it's the same with blood work. We're taking this one snapshot in time. So you have to take that with, you know, with a grain of salt. Um, but you know, it, but it can be useful. Like, you know, there, there are things that, I mean, I definitely look at people's blood work. I think that it is a useful biomarker or, or different biomarkers that we could look at. And so some of the ones that I think are really important that not are, are not commonly taken. Well, first of all, it's like a cholesterol panel is commonly taken. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way we look at it is, is should be, should be different. We should be looking at the trig to HDL ratio, um, and not just total cholesterol or total LDL cholesterol. We, you know, we should be looking at that kind of stuff. Um, the trig to HDL ratio is a, is an indicator of whether or not we're metabolically healthy and insulin resistance and things like that, which is way more important in my opinion, as far as predicting risk for heart disease. Um, but also a, a fasting insulin level, um, is really important, uh, which is not commonly taken at all. Most of the time you ask your doctor for that and they look at you like, you know, like you have three heads or something like that Um, because they don't, they don't necessarily understand why it's so important to take. And it's important because you can pick up on insulin resistance well before it becomes changes in blood sugar. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can intervene then rather than waiting for it to become a pathologic state of, of altering blood sugars, what we know as prediabetes or type two diabetes. Um, So really important to take that there's for, then those are the two best, I think for like metabolic health. And then, the other things you want to look at is, is your levels of inflammation and oxidative stress. And you can really get into the weeds about testing for inflammation and oxidative stress. There's lots of different biomarkers you can take. But I think that um, one, you know, one of the most basic ones that, uh, that you can get a general marker of inflammation is the high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Um, that one's fairly commonly taken. It's, it's definitely, it's on lots of cardiac panels because it is recognized in Western medicine that inflammation is a cause of heart disease. So they, they look at that kind of stuff. Um, but I also like to take GGT, which is a liver enzyme that tells me about, mm-hmm. you know, is oxidative stress happening in the liver? 
Yep. Um, which if it's happening in the liver, that's a big deal because that's the thing that it makes lots of antioxidants. So if it's not able to keep up, that's a big deal. Right. Um, so there's those, but you could look at all kinds of stuff. You could look at damage to fatty acids in the blood. You could look at damage to DNA in the blood to look at inflammation and oxidative stress. Um, so, but you know, lots of those things get like kind of obscure and expensive. Um, so, so yeah, I, I like to take those things, um, the C-reactive protein and the, and the GGT. Um, but yeah, like those, those are, when it comes to like purely cardiovascular stuff, like that's, those are useful there. You could, you could look at hormones. Um, um, but I think that hormone imbalance is more, more, uh, an issue with the liver, not able to process hormones, which could be endotoxemia and things like that. And, um, so that's like another issue altogether, but if people are looking for this, like general stuff, look at their metabolic health and look at the inflammation, oxidative stress and go from there. Perfect. Now, to kind of wrap thing, things up, you know, I know for me, and not that my opinion really matters, to me, this book is for anyone who wants to just have a, well, it says understanding the heart, a better understanding of the why, the why these things that we're talking about, why you would do that. And I, again, my biggest takeaway is this idea that you can't just focus on the heart in isolation. You need to focus on all of the other things like the, the structuring your blood and making sure that the intakes are good. And again, so many people, they, they hear heart health and eating a healthy diet and exercising. That's good for my heart. But I think that's where it stops. I think the book does a great job of going, well, here's what, here's what makes your heart function well whenever you pay attention to how your, what your blood, how healthy your blood is. It's going to pass through and charge the heart and, and everything. Tell me, you know, what was your hope? Who was the audience? Because I know whenever I've written a book, my editor always says, why are you writing it? Why you? And who's your audience? So I want to make sure that everybody knows that, hey, from the author, this is who the book is for and why you wrote it. Yeah, well, I mean, heart disease is the number one killer in the world. So um, there's a lot of people who are directly affected by it because they have it. And there's and there's even more people with loved ones who have it because all those you know, the people who have it have loved ones, you know, so it's, it's for those people. It's for those people to try and understand what this is, why it's happening um, and what we can do about it, you know, because, you know, as, like I said, you know, in the hospital, um, I had these doubts and uh, about, you know, releasing the book and I was filled with a lot of self-doubt. Um, but when I experienced what I experienced, I realized that I, I thought about, you know, those literally millions of people who are going to be in that same situation that I am. And I was just like, they don't have all the information and, and what they're being told is wrong or a lot of what they're being told is wrong. Um, uh, as far as what I was told in the hospital, those three days. And, um, and so I was just like, I, you know, I have to get this out there to the, those people, even if they decide to go a different route, that's fine. Um, they need to know the whole story though. And that that's the, so the audience is, it's really everybody because this is not just a book about heart health. Like these are things that, you know, Western medicine likes to categorize things. And this is, you have a cardiologist, you have a urologist, you have a oncologist, you know, they like to categorize things, mm -hmm. you know, but in reality, the things I talk about in this book, don't just create heart health. They, they prevent all types, they create health in general and they yep. help you prevent all types of the disease. And so it's really important to make that distinction. Um, so the book is really for everyone, but especially ones people with an, a vested interest in 
cardiovascular disease, whether it runs in their family or they have someone or they're struggling with it right now, or they have someone who's in the family who's struggling with it. Um, we need to start understanding these things. We need to start sharing information and having um, open, honest discussion about it in order to find um, uh, the root cause of, of why these things are happening and, and the best approach going forward. Yeah, it, you, well said. And that's the thing I want people to understand. It, and it's why I, I, I harped a little bit early on about the whole ancestral design and how our bodies function. You do a great job of leading up to where we come from and why these, these struggles have taken place in this modern habitat. I mean, the 10 cent calorie, I've said before, the 10 cent calorie is a miracle. It's fed a lot of people at a very cheap price. But with all these marvels of modern medicine and industry, there are some unintended consequences. So I think the book spells out, here's how you navigate in what could be the greatest times that we've ever existed. I mean, we're more comfortable and our medicine is better, but you got to understand how your body actually works. And I think you do, uh, like, I, I think that's kind of what we covered last time, which I love to talk about, just overall health and wellness. And it's, it's cool because guys like you have come along and you've taken your gift as a medical professional professional. And this is exactly what I told Dr. Gus Vickery. I was like, you know, he's a, a general practitioner and yet he's doing now integrative medicine. So many guys like you that are medically trained are realizing exactly what you just said. It's like, well, I understand certainly more about medicine and the, the application to everyone in a whole array of areas than just this one area. Why wouldn't I take that and help people? And there is so much information out there. If people are just willing to go and realize, just go get curious about, so why do I get in a bad mood? Why, why is it whenever I, you know, I just crush a, a half a freaking pound cake that I tend to be kind of grumpy afterwards, you know? What, why, why do these things happen? Why is it that every time I eat lunch and then take a long trip that I'm wanting to fall asleep at the will, whereas if I'm hungry, I seem to have be alert and have all these things, you know? And, and so... I, I'm grateful that you're using your knowledge and your research and your curiosity to benefit those of us out here that are, are willing to open our minds and listen to anyone that's willing to put forth the good information and back it up. And that's one of the things that I, I think you do so well too, Doc, is that you document and you're very respectful of you know other uh, lanes, if you will, of medicine to say, hey, I'll pretend to, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying... I've researched it and here's what I found. And I have, there's not one thing that I found that I disagree with. Yeah. I, I, it's really just about laying the information out there. I want people to think whatever they want to think, but I want them to have all the information before they make up their, their opinion. You know? So where can people find you? Where can they find the book? I got mine off Amazon. How can people get to you? Yeah. So the book is on Amazon. Um, and if people want to use a different source, it's on the publisher's website, which is Chelsea green. It's on, um, books a million and Barnes and Noble, things like that. So people can go there. It's an audiobook and ebook as well. Um, my website is resourceyourhealth.com, which is where I have my blog and my health coaching um, and the books are on there, um, things like that. Um, and then I'm on social media as well um, um, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram um, as DR Stephen Hussey. So people can um, find me there, um, message me there if they'd like. And, and uh, yeah, that's where people can figure it out. Awesome, man. Well, sit tight. I'm going to show the book. 
One more time here. There it is, Understanding the Heart by Dr. Stephen Hussey. It's a phenomenal read. This should be in your library. I say this all the time. A good book for me has to have good utility value. This is not one that you just read for entertainment. This should be a reference guide for anyone who's truly interested in maintaining good, not just good heart health, but just understanding how the body functions properly. And so if you are watching this on the YouTube channel, please subscribe. Please uh, leave some comments, get those algorithms going. And, uh, you know, Dr. Hussey, if he, if you ask a question and I don't have the answer, then I will definitely get it to him or he can answer directly. Also, if you're listening to this on iTunes, please consider leaving a five-star rating. And then the last thing, don't forget to go to jasonrightnow.com and subscribe to the Vitruvian Letter. This is my newsletter where I geek out on stuff just like this, compile all the information that I've gathered throughout the course of the week and all the things that I'm doing to try to improve always and always and live up to this show's motto. And until we see you again, thank you, Dr. Hussey, for coming on. Thank you guys for listening. I'm Jason, and I'm out. All right.